You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. October is Reformation Month, and that's what we're talking about. Last week we had a dialogue between Jim Payton and Father Barnabas Powell. Payton, uh, a Protestant, and Barnabas Powell, an Orthodox priest, discussing Protestantism and Orthodoxy. Well, today... We're talking about just the Reformation in general. What is it? How did it come about? What impact does it have for us today? Things of that sort. And to discuss this, I've decided to have Dr. Glenn Sunshine on. He got his B.A. from Michigan State University in 1980 in linguistics with high honors. He got his master's at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in 85 in church history, graduating summa cum laude, another M.A. at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 87 in Renaissance Reformation history, and his Ph.D. in 1992 from the same place on the same subject. Dr. Sunshine, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us about how you got to be doing it. I mean, one thing, I'm kind of curious how you go from studying linguistics of high honors to studying church history. Well, that's kind of a strange story. When I got out of Michigan State, I got a job working as a tech writer in a computer company. Mm-hmm. And from there, I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. Uh, and ultimately, I, while I could have stayed in technology, I decided I was really more interested in people and ideas than in computers. So I, I was involved in an apologetic study group working with a lot of Francis Schaeffer's material. Mm-hmm. And I decided to go on originally planning to get a degree in a, sort of an interdisciplinary degree in philosophy of religion and church history. Um, after I started there, though, I discovered that my real interest was much more in history. So I ended up with the MA in church history rather than in Christian thought from Trinity. And uh, then uh, I had a choice. I wanted to either pursue Reformation studies or Enlightenment studies. Uh, I applied to programs for both of them, and the one that I got into was Reformation with Bob Kingdon at the University of Wisconsin. So that's how I ended up there. Mm-hmm. So what made the, uh, the Reformation so interesting to you? Well, in the long run, the 16th century, well, technically, I would describe myself as a 16th century historian. Okay. We're a imperialistic century. We consider the century beginning with the invention of printing in 1450 and going through the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648. So it's what's referred to as the long 16th century. It's about mm-hmm. 200 years long. Mm-hmm. And if you take a look at the number of things that changed during that period, it's pretty staggering. You have the invention of printing, of course, but along with that, you have the discovery of the new world. 
and the first uh, global empires. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the uh, Renaissance, uh, the peak of the Renaissance is occurring dur- during that period. You have the Reformation, you have the wars of religion, you have arguably the foundation of modern nation states. There's all kinds of things that are going on in the period, and it's a major transition from the medieval world to uh, what we would describe today as the modern world. So there's so much happening, and on top of that, you know, as a believer, uh, I was really interested in a lot of the ideas and the theology and how that worked out in practice. Yeah. When you start talking about Gutenberg, I remember that uh, Michael Cohen and I once went to hear Gary Habermas give a talk at a university on the Gospels and the Resurrection. I don't remember what exactly it was. It might have been the Gospels, it might have been the Resurrection, but you know, with him, both usually get tied together anyway. And I remember someone in the audience in the Q&A asking a question about, you know, if this stuff was so real and so important and such, why didn't anyone just write it down immediately? And I remember leaning over to Mike and saying, that's the kind of question we ask today. And that's the question we ask as a result of the printing press. If the printing press hadn't been invented, probably we wouldn't be asking that question. Yes. Um, printing changes the world in ways that we find difficult to really understand, um, largely because we've been living with it for, you know, 500 years plus now. Uh, It changes the way you think about written materials. It changes the way you think about accuracy and precision. Uh, It allows the dissemination of knowledge at an unprecedented rate. Prior to this, you have to realize that in the ancient world, learning was primarily oral. You Mm. learned things verbally. And things were written down mostly to remind you of things that you'd already studied. Mm-hmm. Now, there are exceptions to that, letters and things like that. But overall, writing was a secondary means of learning. Mostly it was done orally. Mm-hmm. And one indication of this is that if you look at Greek and Roman texts or Hebrew texts, they were originally written as an unbroken string of letters with no capitalization, no word breaks or no punctuation. Mm-hmm. So that by itself will show you, if you think about it, you know, you can read that, but it's not going to be the main way you're going to go about learning things. Mm-hmm. It's mostly there to remind you of things you've already studied. With a number of changes that occur actually in the early Middle Ages and how books are written, uh, writing can become a primary means of learning. And then with the printing press, it becomes possible to accumulate enough books from enough different sources and authors that it that you can become self-taught in areas and it's a stimulus to creativity mm-hmm. yeah i think we the closest comparison we could have today would be the coming of the internet and the digital age i mean something that's even changed in my lifetime for instance usually when i was growing up you could go to your church and you have people say open up your bibles but yeah i've told oh, my wife said you know today we can come to church and they'd say turn on your Bibles, and it would be fully accurate, because I could bring my Kindle with me and read the Bible that way, and heck, even right now, in the past, if you wanted to do an interview with someone, it'd probably be on a radio station, you'd have the car in and such, now it's on Skype, and it, it radically changes things, but so the digital age, I think, would be our closest comparison to the print age, wouldn't it? Yes, and what most people don't realize is the impact that the internet and um, e-communication is having on the way we think about things. Mm-hmm. 
printing shaped printing shaped our minds in really pretty profound ways and it changed a whole lot of things like i said most of which i mean i could go through a list of them but it, i don't think that's really worthwhile right now the fact that we have digital devices in our pocket and google always available changes in substantial ways the way we think the way we learn and I mean, I don't want to sound like a Luddite here, but frankly, not for the better. Uh, think about it like this. The way you learn things is it's like your, your mind has a lot of hooks in it. And to learn something, you have to find a hook to hang it on. You learn by association, in other words. You associate one thing with another, and that's how you remember things, and that's how you learn. Mm -hmm. The more hooks you have, the broader the base of learning you can have, and the broader the number of perspectives you can bring to bear on a subject. With Google, you no longer have to learn things. If you want a fact, you just simply look it up and then you've got it for when you need it and then you promptly forget it. What that means is you're not installing hooks in your mind. Mm -hmm. And as a result, your ability to see things from a variety of perspectives shrinks your ability to learn things, to remember things shrink, the amount of knowledge you have actually accessible to you in your mind, which is the only knowledge that counts really when it comes to thinking issues through, that shrinks. Um, the, the internet has had a kind of devastating effect, I would argue, just on my base, the basis of my observations in my university classes. It's had a devastating mm -hmm. impact on our ability to think and our ability to understand stuff. Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple of offers right now. One I haven't got to read yet, but Nicholas Carr's work for Shadows, what the Internet is doing to our brains. And mm -hmm. uh, one I have read, Mark Bauerlein's book for Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans. And, and I think it's up to never trust anyone under 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, now... It's worth noting that the comparison to that, to, to printing, or actually even simply the invention of paper, uh, I just argued that the Internet has resulted in a, a kind of atrophying of our ability to learn and our ability to think through issues. Uh, in a sense, paper did the same thing. Because once it becomes possible to write things down, you no longer have to remember them. Mm -hmm. And the net result is memory has atrophied. We do not remember things as well as the people did before the advent of, uh, of uh, writing and before, before widespread literacy and the ready availability of writing materials. We simply don't. Uh, an illustration of that, think about uh, reading books to a toddler. Mm -hmm. After you've read a book to a toddler once or twice, the toddler has the whole thing memorized. And the reason, now, they'd still like you to read to them because they like the interaction, but if the toddler wants to go through that book sometime and you're not there, they have to remember it because they can't read. Mm -hmm. And because they have to remember it, they do remember it. Mm -hmm. yeah. We don't. We don't. We mm -hmm. don't have to, yeah. so we don't. Our memories have, are, are weaker. Well, it'd be fascinating to spend the whole show talking about this, but we got to focus on the Reformation still. Sure. So um, what is the Reformation exactly? Well, there's a lot of different answers to that, but fundamentally, I would argue that it is a theological movement that came up in the early years of the 16th century. Uh, it was triggered by a lot of blatant abuses in the Catholic Church, 
But rather than just going after the abuses, it went after underlying doctrines that the Protestant reformers believed caused those abuses to happen. Mm. And as a result, it represents a major change in Christian theology, a major uh, and creates one of the major branches of uh, the Christian church today. Mm. So uh, I'm guessing you probably, based on what you said, you're thinking that maybe the Protestants, when they first went this route, they didn't handle it the right way? No, I wouldn't say that necessarily. Well, yes, they didn't handle it the right way, but nobody ever does. We're human. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of what happened during the Reformation was necessary and was biblically appropriate. Mm-hmm. But having said that, it does produce one of the major branches in Christendom that is really different and has a number of distinctives from the other ones, meaning the Catholic and the Orthodox. Mm-hmm. So, so what kind of changes are we talking about that took place? What did the reformers see that needed to be done? Okay, well, let, let's just start from the beginning. Let's take okay. a look at what the situation was as you're moving into the 16th century in Europe with the Catholic Church. Okay. In, in order to understand why the Reformation happens, you have to know what it's changing from. Mm. So, in the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was, frankly, in one of its worst states in history. Uh, the Catholic Church, like any any organization, goes through its ups and downs. There are times when there are reformers. There are times when there are people who are corrupt. Actually, both of those are present at every time and in every place. It's just a question of which one had the upper hand. In the 16th century, early 16th century, it's clear that that corruption was winning. Uh, And you can see this from top to bottom. The papacy was uh, essentially a political power, and it was built around promoting, in many cases, promoting family interests and things like that. There was very little sense for most of the Renaissance popes, of the true spiritual mission of the papacy. They were surrounded by a college of cardinals that were equally political animals interested in wealth and power. Below that level, you have the bishops. The bishops are typically political appointees, younger sons of nobles, and it's a way for the family to increase its clout and its prestige and to provide for a good source of funding um, for the son so that the son can live, live well. So the many of the bishops, most of the bishops really are are not really that interested in their spiritual duties. They're interested in wealth and power. Then you get down to the local parish priests. When the plague ran through Europe in the mid-14th century, it's worth noting that of all of the different segments of society, the clergy had the highest fatality rate. And that's because many of the priests were very serious about their duties and went around ministering to plague victims and therefore contracted plague themselves. Mm -hmm. The ones that were left over were frequently the ones who were less serious and who had run away. But one way or another, the church needed more priests. So what ends up happening is they begin lowering the standards for admission to the priesthood. With the net result that by the early 16th century, you have a lot of priests who are there because they see this as a way of uh, earning a cushy living. Um, Many of them are illiterate. They don't even understand the Latin of the mass that they chant. Um, And a significant number of them have, well, concubines, uh, women that they're living with. They're not allowed to marry, but they have de facto common law wives. Now, the bishops who are supposed to be overseeing them don't really care about much of these things. 
And in particular, if you look, read the account books of bishops, many of them actually seem to be actively encouraging priests to take concubines because in their annual visitation, the annual um, calling of the clergy to have them give account of their diocese, they can, they can fine the priests for having a concubine. And in the account books, you find them actually actively encouraging priests to have concubines because the you know there's a regular line in the ledger for the collection of fines from priests with concubines so they see this as a money maker for them mm-hmm. so that's the state of the church and the net result of this is that although you get anti-clerical jokes throughout the middle ages there's a huge upturn of them in the 15th century leading into the 16th century to the point where you know how we have genre jokes? You know, if I, if I tell you, okay, there was a blonde, you generally know where the joke's going to yeah. be. There are the stereotypes there, or a lawyer, whatever. If I said there was a monk, it was probably going to be about drinking. If I said it was a priest or a nun, it was going to be about sex. Mm-hmm. That's the, the level to which the reputation of the clergy had sunk. So there was a screaming need for reform in the church. Um and there were earlier reformers prior to the Protestants. Uh, Erasmus, for example, uh, Desiderius Erasmus, the guy who publishes the first Greek New Testament, was really serious about church reform. And he had a reform program that was actually getting some traction built around the idea that what you need is to clean up the abuses. Now, his reform program got derailed because of Martin Luther. Luther had a more radical idea that ended up actually... Uh, short-circuiting Erasmus's reform program. Now, to understand Luther, we need a little of his background. Um, he'd originally been planning to go to law school, but he got caught in a very violent thunderstorm and was convinced he was about to, well, to die, to be hit by lightning. And he called on God to save him and promised to become a monk if he did. Well, he survived this and then realized that even though that prayer was said in panic, it amounted to a sacred vow. So he entered a monastery and began um, studying for the priesthood, eventually getting a doctorate in theology. But while he was in the monastery, remember, he was planning to be a lawyer, and he and many people believe we'd still remember him as one of the great legal minds in European history uh, if he hadn't taken his detour to the monastery. And it appears, according to R.C. Sproul at least, um, it appears that what happened with Luther in the monastery is he began looking at scripture. And when asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Luther looked at this and started trying to evaluate himself in light of that commandment. Because if that's the greatest commandment, not loving God must be the greatest sin. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, so, well, how do we do on this? Uh, with all your heart, let's just keep it simple. This, it's more, you know, it's deeper than this. But let's just say your heart's your emotions. Okay. Can you honestly say that all of your emotions are wrapped up in the love of God? Heck no. Everyone that isn't is a mortal sin. Mm-hmm. What about your soul? Again, it's more complicated. Let's call that your will. Is your will completely wrapped up in your love of God? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> mortal sin. Your mind, all your thoughts. Your strength, uh, all of your physical actions. Let's say mo- most of them we don't want to know. <laughs> right. So, yeah, and Luther, that, that's true of all of us. And Luther yep. looked at himself and said, I am a walking mortal sin. Everything I do 
is tainted by the fact that uh, uh, it's not being done completely. Remember, it's your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not. It, it's tainted because it's not completely occupied with the love of God. And so Luther was in a panic over this. He started going to his confessor. He was confessing his sins. He would literally spend hours every day with his confessor. Now, I've got to believe that Johann Staupitz, Luther's confessor, has got a special place in heaven for having to put up with this guy. I understand he was getting sick of it for quite a well, while. Yeah. At one point, he told Luther, Martin, you have not confessed anything remotely interesting in weeks. Go away and don't come back until you've done something worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, none of this is giving Luther any relief. He goes on a pilgrimage to Rome. He just sees massive amounts of corruption there. He's got clear eyes. He understands what's going on. And he comes back in, a, in, in despair over the state of the church and over the state of his soul. And then one day, he was studying in a tower room, and he had what he called his tower experience. And he seems to have been reading in the book of Romans, maybe some St. Augustine, but something jumped out at him. And we're not sure, he doesn't go into a great deal of detail exactly what it was. But the key seems to be the phrase, the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. Now, remember Erasmus's Greek New Testament. We don't know for sure if this is it, but this is a good way of getting at it. The grammatical construction in Latin for the righteousness of God refers to, well, God's own righteousness, God's standards of righteousness, um, God's absolute unbending holiness, that kind of thing. If you switch it to Greek, though, the same construction can have another meaning. It can mean righteousness coming from God. And it seems, whether or not that was the root Luther got there, it seems that that was the idea that struck him, that in fact, he had this idea of a tyrannical God who demanded impossible things from us and then punished us for not living up to them. What he suddenly realized is that the God that's portrayed in Scripture isn't like that. Yes, he is. He has absolute standards. Yes, he is completely holy. Yes, we can't possibly live up to the standards he has for us. But what we can't do for ourselves, God does for us. Righteousness comes from him. He doesn't demand it of us. And so what we lack, he fills through Jesus Christ. And in return for this, God only asks one thing from us, that we trust him, which is another word for faith, Mm -hmm. that we give our allegiance to him. And if we do this, if we will trust him to forgive our sins, he'll forgive them. If we will trust him to supply righteousness for us, he will supply us with his righteousness. And this, this realization that Luther had in the tower room transformed his life. It's not like he lost sight of the guilt of his sin, but instead he realized that God had taken care of it and he no longer needed to be to worry about it. He no longer needed to be paralyzed by it. And it completely freed him. And from that point, Luther, like I said, he becomes a, a, a theology professor. He develops a new system of theology known originally as the, the New Theology or the Wittenberg Theology after where he was teaching. Um, based on this as its core idea. And he develops all of the rest of his theology around this idea of salvation through Christ and through Christ alone. And that's the beginning of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. I think it is a biblically faithful understanding. Uh, I think it is a very rich and valuable insight 
What I will say, however, is that this does not mean that Catholic or Orthodox theology is all wrong. Uh, um, just as, as sort of a personal note here, I believe that things like the atonement, what Jesus did on the cross, is something that is so profound and so theologically rich that it can be understood correctly in multiple ways. The problem becomes when we insist that our way of looking at it is the only legitimate way. Thus, for example, in the Orthodox Church, their understanding of salvation is less built around these kinds of legal ideas that we use in the West, and it's built around the idea of theosis, which, to quote the words of uh, Peter, it's becoming partakers of the divine nature. Uh, it's, it's becoming more and more like Christ. It's actually the idea that Paul talks about when he says we are in Christ. They emphasize the theosis idea, and if you look at Protestant reformers, they have similar ideas. But the problem comes in when we say that Christ's atonement is only a matter of forgiveness of sins or only a matter of theosis, when in fact it's both. Mm -hmm. it, has, it has much greater significance than any one of our theological, uh, theological systems uh, can really uh, account for completely. Mm -hmm. so, so when you ask the question... You know, when I said that you, a new branch of, of uh, Christianity emerges at this point, you asked whether that was, I thought that was a good or a bad thing. Yes, I think it's a good thing, because it brings out other aspects of theology that were lost to the other systems, or that were invisible to the other systems. Yeah. So Luther's insight on justification by faith, I would say, is exactly correct. Yeah. He's he got it right. Mm -hmm. And that enriches our understanding of God and enriches our understanding of uh, the way he works with us and with the world. I've uh, heard that uh, it's been said that each branch kind of brings its own thing to Christianity, that the Orthodox really bring in the idea of beauty and mysticism and such, that the Catholics bring in the idea of organization and such. And I'd say if anything, the Protestants bring in the idea of the importance of a book in the mind, because we are people of a book entirely. <laughs> yes, I, I would add to that with the Catholic side, no one does moral theology better than the Catholics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would add that in as another important contribution from them. Yeah. So let's uh, go back to Martin Luther here, Vin, and what he's got going on. Mm -hmm. Now, he goes and he has these concerns of what he sees going on in the Catholic Church. And it's not just him. I mean, Erasmus and several other Catholics were saying these kinds of things as well. And he goes and he writes these 95 theses and put, puts them on a Wittenberg door. And that's really just a way of having, when you say, hey, let's start a conversation here, I think. Right. And yeah. what now, happens from there? Yeah, just, just as a, a, a clarification here. Okay. The key thing about Luther, the thing that distinguishes Luther from Erasmus is that Erasmus is looking at all the abusive practices within the church, and he thinks that the solution for the abusive practices is to end the abusive practices. Mm -hmm. Luther says the abusive practices are in the church because its theology is wrong. It's not thinking about the gospel rightly. And because it's not thinking about the gospel rightly, 
it's doing the wrong things. Mm -hmm. So Luther's idea is more radical than Erasmus. Erasmus is is basically just straighten up and fly right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Luther's is no, we've got to go right back to the start and rethink everything mm -hmm. in light of the proper uh, recovery of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, in the, in the case of the ninety five theses, that's that's itself a long story, uh, but. Basically, the, he, th that was a response to a specific abusive situation that had come up within the Catholic Church. And it's grossly abusive, really, by anybody's standards. Um, any honest Catholic theologian would have criticized that indulgence sale. Okay? Mm -hmm. Luther tacks up the 95 Theses. And what ends up happening, you know, now, in this period, the way academics worked is you would challenge people to debates. You know, you didn't have exams or term papers. You had debates in school. Mm -hmm. Theologians, uh, professors debated. That's what you did. So the 95 theses were theses that Luther put up that he said he wanted to debate with uh, a particular group of people who actually weren't allowed into Saxony, but that's that, that takes us too far afield. So these were intended to be an academic exercise, a... Uh, uh, a proposal, as you said, for discussion and debate. It turns out, however, that Luther Luther claims he didn't know this was going to happen. I don't really believe him. But um, some of his students took them down, had them translated into German, the common language, and then brought them to a printer. Mm -hmm. And they it became a runaway bestseller. The 95 Theses became a major, major seller all across Germany. So, and, so, so to jump in on quick, we could probably say if it had been for a printing press, the Reformation would have never happened. That's correct. Luther himself said God invented the printing press to reform his church. Hmm. Okay. So with printing, Luther's ideas spread far and wide across Germany. And suddenly Luther is catapulted into a major debate. And this has now become a major issue within the church um, because people aren't. You know, they're, they're questioning all kinds of things. Now, the trick here is, like I said, any Catholic theologian, any honest Catholic theologian would have criticized this indulgence sale. However, the trick with the 95 Theses is how Luther went, up, went about criticizing the indulgence sale. The 95 Theses went after the indulgences from the perspective of Luther's new theology. And although Luther himself hadn't thought it through yet, the implications of Luther's ideas moved into a lot of things other than just selling indulgences. It called into question papal authority. It called into question the authority of the church. It called into uh, question church tradition. Um, it called into question issues of free will and predestination. There were a ton of things that, not directly stated, but that were implied in the 95 Theses that raised a host of other questions. And so the net result is over the next few years, there'll be several other discussions, debates, things like that, until finally in 1523, years after the 95 Theses, the Pope really worried about the impact of all of this on the German church and frankly on his revenue, orders Luther to recant everything or be excommunicated. He sends a papal bull, which is an official papal document. It's called a bull because the lead seal that was used to authenticate it was called a bulla. So 
Um, he sent a papal bull of excommunication north to Luther, and Luther publicly burned it. Mm-hmm. Because Luther understood that if his core theological ideas were correct, one thing that all these discussions did is they pushed him to consistency with his own position. And he now understood better what the implications of justification by faith are. And the net result is uh, he was not willing to give up on that. He was convinced from Scripture that that was absolutely true. And so he publicly burned the bull. He was excommunicated. And that's the point at which the split becomes, well, effectively irrevocable. Yeah, I know a lot of Catholics who look and say, well, what are the odds that one monk got all this right about justification by faith and theology, and all the Catholic Church was just wrong. Doesn't that seem like a bit of a stretch? Yes, and that was an argument that was presented to Luther himself. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and, and, and that argument actually shook Luther up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that if you go back to, for example, St. Augustine, mm-hmm. Augustine holds a view of salvation very similar to Luther's. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the Presbyterian theologian, 19th century Presbyterian B.B. Warfield, said that what the Protestant Reformation was, uh, he said it represented the triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. <laughs> so, yes, this is, this is in fact an issue, and it was one that Luther himself, like I said, was aware of, but um, again, well— We'd have to talk about how Luther got his ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that I, I would argue that what happened with Luther was, all right, well, let's contrast Erasmus. Okay. What these guys are are Renaissance humanists. Luther was certainly heavily influenced by humanism. Erasmus is a humanist. Now, when we talk about humanism today, we mean something a little bit different from what it meant in the Renaissance. Uh, today, humanism is really a philosophy. In the Renaissance, it was a curriculum of studies and a method of, um, of analyzing texts. Mm-hmm. And to understand the difference here, in, in, in the scholastics in the Middle Ages would analyze, you know, let's say you wanted to study, well, a book of the Bible. Let's say you wanted to study Romans. Okay. You would have the text of Romans, but along with that, you would have a whole bunch of things called glosses, which are essentially paraphrases, and commentaries on, on it. And you would never approach the text in it for its own sake. You would always approach it through the glosses and commentaries. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing isn't necessarily the text, but but it's what everybody has been saying about the text for centuries. Mm -hmm. The humanists come along and say, well, well, wait a minute. These ancient writers that we're studying, when they wrote things down, they expected people to understand them. Let's get rid of all this extra crud that's built up around it. Let's get rid of the glosses and commentaries, and let's just analyze the text for itself. Let's assume that these guys were smart enough to write things down in a way that was understandable. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they go to the text and they analyze the text by itself without the glosses and commentaries. They study rhetorical devices. They study how the argument is framed, all of these kinds of things. In fact, they study texts, the Renaissance humanists are studying texts much the way we would today. Uh, Our approach is really based on what they were doing. 
Now, here's the trick. The other thing about Renaissance humanists is that many of them were intensely practical people. They really weren't interested in a lot of speculative stuff. They weren't interested in abstract philosophy or abstract theology, things like that, which is why when Erasmus comes up with a reform program, he builds it, builds it around correcting abuses. He builds it around practical issues. He's not interested in theological questions. Luther, on the other hand, is a trained theologian. He was trained using the traditional methods of scholasticism, but he also started getting really inf interested in humanism, which they called the new learning in that period. Mm -hmm. He got interested in the new learning and started trying to apply humanist methods to the biblical text. However, unlike Erasmus, Luther had theological interests. And so he asked theological questions, which Erasmus didn't do, but he used new methodologies to answer those questions based on the humanists. The old questions with new methodologies give you new answers. Mm -hmm. okay. And since those answers are based on an actual reading of the biblical text, rather than on glosses and commentaries and things like that, I would say the answers are more reliable. Mm -hmm. They are, in fact, more faithful to the biblical text than the ones that the scholastics were coming up with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you also said the emperors again concerned because as soon as these nine five feces were going out, the he uh, it was even the emperor of a pope. I think it was a pope. The pope was losing revenue. Why is that? Is it because indulgences weren't coming in as much? Um, that's part of it. The, the indulgence sale dried up, which mm -hmm. didn't affect the pope directly, but indirectly. But also Luther's uh, increasing criticism of the pope was leading to a decrease in money coming in from Germany. It was leading to a decrease in his authority and the respect that he was held in, all of these kinds of things. Mm. The church, the church as an institution was the largest landowner in Europe. It was the wealthiest uh, organization in Europe. And lots and lots of money were funneled from all over Europe to Rome. That's how St. Peter's Basilica ended up being built. Now, it's worth noting the Pope at this time was nonetheless spending money so fast he bankrupted the papacy. Mm -hmm. But having said that, anything that threatens papal authority, papal prestige, um, and papal power, which Luther's ideas very clearly did by this point, uh, was a threat to Rome. Mm -hmm. And so the popes really felt like they needed to respond to this. Mm -hmm. Now, some people, some of the Catholic side miles, I say, you know, Luther going and making something like this and saying that, something as if the gospel was lost to me, isn't that kind of the same thing the Mormons did? How is Luther being different from the Mormons? Well, Luther's being different from the Mormons in that he's actually basing his on the biblical scriptures, not on new texts that have come out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would say fundamentally, that's the basic answer. Yeah, I, I was going to be a simple question, but I wanted to ask it anyway. So, okay, so Luther's got this out, and it's pretty much forgotten it's been cast down. How does the Catholic Church respond? Well, as I said, they started off by responding by excommunicating him in, in 1520, after which is when a lot of his most strident critiques started coming out. At this point, Germany was part of a large confederation known as the Holy Roman Empire. 
And one of the reasons why Luther was able to get rolling here is that the emperor, the previous emperor, had died. And the new emperor wasn't elected until 1519. Mm. So this gave Luther a window of opportunity to begin to, for his ideas to begin to spread. Now, the new Holy Roman Emperor was uh, the king of Spain, Charles I. He's better known as Charles V because his Holy Roman Emperor, he was Charles V. Charles I of Spain, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, same guy. He decided, once he got his administration in order, he decided he needed to do something about the religious division inside the empire. So what he did was... Uh, call Luther to a meeting of what was known as the Imperial Diet, uh, or Diet, we would pronounce it in English. This was the legislature of the Holy Roman Empire. And he wanted Luther to come there to answer for um, his, you know, the excommunication and, and uh, the disruption that he brought into the church. And he promised Luther an imperial safe conduct to let him go to the the uh, the diet and to return. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now the problem with this is that a century before there was a reformer by the name of Jan Hus, who'd had many of the same ideas as Luther, who was given an imperial safe conduct to a church council. When he got there, the church council said, "You don't have to keep your word to heretics." They arrested him, put him on trial for heresy, and then burned him at the stake. Mm -hmm. And Luther had already been compared to us, and in fact, like I said, a lot of their ideas were very similar. So the question that emerges then in Luther's mind, of course, is imperial safe conduct, is this real? This is you know, a trap. Am I going to be safe on this? Hmm. But he knew he really didn't have any choice, so he went there. Crowds greeted him all along the way. He was a hero. He was, he was viewed as a major hero across Germany as he's traveling to Worms. Uh, to the city of Worms, where the diet was going to be held. And uh, while he was there, you know, he was telling people, yeah, he was going to make fools of the Pope's representatives, he was going to prove the truth of his doctrine, all of these kinds of things. Uh, a lot of bluster, a lot of bravado, that kind of thing. When he got there, however, he, he comes to the room and uh, the trial begins. And they say to him, you know, are you Dr. Martin Luther? Yes, I am. Uh, are these your works? Yes, they are. Um, do you recant? And Luther started launching into a defense of his views, but they stopped him immediately. They said, we didn't ask you to defend your ideas. They've already been condemned by the church. Your only question is, do you recant? And this kind of threw Luther because he'd expected to be in, in a debate where he'd be able to defend his ideas and those kinds of things. But he asked for time to consider they gave him 24 hours, and in those 24 hours, Luther really had to do a lot of soul-searching and because he knew that, given the way the deck was stacked against him, if he didn't recant, he was a condemned heretic standing in front of the Holy Roman Emperor, whose job it was to punish heretics, among other things. Mm -hmm. So Luther wrestled through this overnight. He came in the next day, same deal, are you Dr. Martin Luther? Are these your books? Yes, yes. Do you recant? And he says, well, I can't really do that because all these books are not all of the same type. Some of them present Christian doctrine in terms so simple and clear, not even the Pope would disagree with them. To revoke something like that, to, to um, 
recant something like that is unthinkable. Now, there are others that are a lot more harsh, and maybe I did kind of go overboard. Then they, they stopped and they said, Martin, shut up. We know, you know what we're asking. Do you recant or don't you? Simple answer, yes or no. Uh, Luther then gave one of the most famous speeches in history, which went something like this. Since your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it neither horned nor toothed. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, for I do not trust in popes or councils, for they have often erred and contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God and to the scriptures I have quoted. I cannot and will not recant since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. When, and when, uh, he gave the, when he gave the speech, pandemonium broke out. He was escorted out. And fortunately, Charles V was true to his word. He didn't arrest Luther on the spot. Luther left um, safely. But as soon as he was out of imperial territory, Charles declared him an imperial outlaw, which meant that it was open season on him. Anyone who found him could kill him on sight. When my wife and I got married, the wedding ring she got me and I'm wearing right now is the Martin Luther wedding ring. And when I was asked it to say I do, I was tempted to say, here I stand, I can do no other. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so Luther now is a condemned outlaw. Pretty much, you can see signs all around the whole area saying Luther season immediately. Uh, what happens next? Well, Luther's patron, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, um, wasn't happy that his star theologian had just gotten uh, himself condemned to death. As Luther was riding back to Wittenberg, however, a group of masked horsemen charged up to the cart, grabbed him, put a sack over his head, threw him on a horse, and rode off with him. Mm. It turns out that these guys were sent by Elector Frederick because he didn't want Luther dead. He told some of his guys, look, grab Luther on the way home, take him somewhere, don't tell me where he is because if the emperor asks, I don't want to have to lie to the emperor. So what they did is they took him to a largely abandoned castle at this point called the Wartburg, and uh, Luther got holed up in there living um, under the name Knight George. Mm. And uh, while he was there, he directed the reform in Wittenberg from, by mail and wrote some more. And most importantly, translated the New Testament into German so that the common people could read it. Mm -hmm. He would follow this up by translating the Old Testament as well. Mm -hmm. Now, the, when we say common people, I seem to have a term like for the Vulgate. Comes from because a vulgar language doesn't mean even crass or dirty, or right. it meant the common language, right? And when Jerome translated the, the Bible into Latin, mm -hmm. it was the common language. Mm -hmm. However, things had changed since yeah. then, the Catholic Church had never kept up. Now, when Martin Luther is doing all this, he still sees himself as a good Catholic. He never really intended to start a new church. Okay, by this point, I wouldn't. I would kind of question that. Okay, he certainly did not intend to start a new church. He, uh, when Luther developed his theology, there were a lot of different variations of theology that were considered perfectly acceptable within Catholicism. Mm -hmm. 
And he just thought of himself as developing a better form of theology that would fit within the orbit of Catholicism. Unfortunately, like I said, he hadn't really thought through the implications of all of his ideas, and it didn't work that way. Once he's excommunicated, once he's declared an outlaw, uh, all of these kinds of things, he basically gives up. On, he's, by this point, he's given up on the church in Rome. He doesn't think there's any hope of reforming it. He figures it just, you know, it's hopelessly corrupt. The Pope is the Antichrist. There may be true believers within the church. Luther certainly uh, believed that. But he thought that the whole system was so corrupt and so bad that really that was not really a true church at all. Mm -hmm. I think I've even heard that he referred to John Tetzer even as a Christian before. Yeah, he may have done that. I'm not absolutely sure. But mm -hmm. yeah, that's possible. But he certainly held a lot of the Catholic saints in high regard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, you know, going back to Augustine, but even people like Bernard of Clairvaux and a number of others, he, he had a high degree of respect for. Yeah. And Luther and other reformers, as far as I know, never, ever questioned what we would call the essential Christian doctrines or anything of that sort. Right. Now, here's where, where we go wrong. Okay. Um, in... We can talk about uh, more of this later, but Lutheran, or excuse me, Protestant doctrine has been summed up really only in the 20th century, but it's been summed up using a number of solas. The word sola is Latin for only. Yeah. Solus. Um, R.C. Sproul and Company, like five, um, I think that's going overboard. Originally, the first person who, who developed this had three, and I think th that's what I go with. Mm -hmm. There are two dealing with salvation, sola fide and sola gratia. We're saved by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone. But the third is how do you settle theological questions, which is sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Mm -hmm. All of our doctrine has to be based around scripture. Now, here's the trick. Here's where we go wrong. We take sola scriptura frequently as meaning solo scriptura. Or nuda scriptura. Solo with yeah. an O, rather yeah. than an A. Which means that when I read the Bible, whatever I see in the Bible is God's word to me. Yep. That's not what Luther meant. Mm -hmm. To Luther, Luther is, at this point, entering a much larger and older theological argument. Uh, actually, going back, you can, you can argue it goes back to about the 4th century. And that's the, the question of the role of tradition within the church. In the early centuries of the church, and there's a historian named Heiko Obermann who's tracked all of this out, um, and what he points out is that in the early centuries of the church, the Bible was considered the supreme authority, and tradition was supplementary to it. However, the Bible needed to be read according to what was known as the regula fide, the rule of faith. That is things like basic Christian doctrine, things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, um, the, you know, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, all of those sorts of things. And the rule of faith didn't have independent authority, but what it said was, if you read the Bible and you come to a conclusion that is contradictory to this, you've misinterpreted it. Mm -hmm. it was it was the 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 core doctrines that are taught in scripture now somewhere around the fourth century people began arguing stronger arguments that tradition ha can be independent of scripture and have a degree of authority by itself by the time you get to the central middle ages tradition there's a debate going on between people who say 
Yeah, tradition and scripture both are independent sources of authority and they're equal to each other. And others who are saying, no, scripture alone is the source of authority interpreted according to the rule of faith. Mm-hmm. So Luther says, when, when, the, when Luther is arguing for scripture alone, he's speaking in a context w- which implies the idea of the rule of faith. Mm-hmm. So Luther would argue that fundamental Christian doctrine about the Trinity, about the Incarnation, about the two natures of Christ, all of these kinds of things are true, not because doctrine, the doctrine says that it's true, but because it's taught in Scripture— and that is why it's there in the rule of faith. The rule of faith is there as a guideline to keep us from misinterpreting Scripture. Yeah, I which think, is why it doesn't have a problem with using the creeds in the liturgy. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Catholics and such, and even Orthodox seconders say, "Well, it looks like what you did was you took one pope, got rid of him, and replaced him with a few billion other little popes." Well. You can, in fact, make that argument, except that, again, Luther, Calvin, none of the Reformers believed that Scripture really should be subject to personal interpretation. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you need to read it in the context of the community, the historical community via the rule of faith, but also, well, each of the individual traditions develops their own ideas about certain aspects of what Scripture is teaching. Mm-hmm. But, but none of modern evangelicalism, like I said, has gone so low Scripture, that was never the intent yeah. of the Reformers. Yeah. Um, it, it's worth noting, you know, the, the separation between Catholic and Protestant churches can best be understood, I would argue, by means of a distinction that Luther himself made. There, there was in this period this idea, once you start to get, getting competitive churches, you know, churches that are, are um, arguing against each other, where there's more than, you know, in the Middle Ages, Catholic Church was the only game in town. No matter how corrupt it is, if you wanted to get saved, you had to do it through the Catholic Church. That's what everybody thought. Once the Catholic Church's monopoly on salvation is broken and you get these competing churches out there, how do you determine which one is the real church? Luther argued that the way you do this and this is going to be followed by most of the reformers, especially first and even second generation reformers. He's going to argue that there are two marks of the true church. There are two things that are essential for the church to do. First of all, it has to preach the gospel rightly. The word has to be rightly preached. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the sacraments have to be rightly administered. As long as those two things are in place, word and sacrament, you've got a true church. Mm -hmm. The Catholic church violated both of them. It lost the gospel. It wasn't preaching the word correctly. Justification by faith, salvation through Christ, all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it it butchered the sacraments. Catholic sacraments are not what sacraments are meant to be. They're, uh, they don't understand sacraments correctly, and therefore they're not celebrating them correctly. They think the wrong things about them. They, they practice them the wrong way. So the Catholic Church fails on both counts. That's why I would say Luther would reject the idea, or, or would by this point would not say he's trying to be a good Catholic anymore. He's saying the Catholic Church, uh, you know, it's lost the gospel and it's even lost the sacraments. Hey, could you expound on that point about the sacraments, about them not observing property and such? Because I, I know I've got some Catholic friends who say, you know, if I'm a Protestant church, they don't have any sacraments. 
Well, there's some Protestants who don't like using the word sacraments, but Luther, Calvin, and all of the others didn't have a problem with it. Mm. Um, Baptists will frequently call them ordinances instead. Mm-hmm. But, they're, you know, historically they're known as sacraments, and they're known as that for a reason. Uh, let's start with the word sacramentum. Um, this is a this is used, in, interestingly enough, in the Vulgate to translate the Greek word mysterion, mystery. Uh, a mystery in Greek, the idea is it's something that has been hidden that is now revealed. Mm-hmm. They take the word sacramentum to change that, to, to translate that. But the interesting thing about sacramentum is it was a word that was used in, uh, in secular Latin. And what it was, uh, what a sacramentum was, was a, a kind of oath, but it was an oath taken before the gods. And as such, you were calling on the gods to witness your oath and to enforce it. If you violated your oath, you were calling on the gods to punish you. Okay. So a sacramentum is a sacred pledge. And once you make once you make this kind of a sacred pledge, you are a sacer in Latin. You are, you are a person who is in a sense sacred who is bound to the gods. It's interesting that the early church takes that word and uses it for baptism and for communion. These are where the intention here was that these are sacred pledges before God of your loyalty to him, your fidelity to him, your faith in him, your obedience to him, recognizing him as Lord, all of these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And over time, now, now that, that, like I said, that's the word sacrament. The church believed very, very early on that baptism and communion both carried with them some kind of special divine grace, that grace comes to you through these sacraments. Um, they mark you in a way, baptism particularly. You can see that as marking a person out literally before all the powers of, of the, the spiritual realm mm-hmm. as someone who belongs to Christ. Okay? Mm-hmm. Communion, Lord's Supper, was seen as being a way of in, developing, in, in, as Paul puts it, you are having fellowship. The word there is koinonia, which is a word in secular Greek that means the, the most, in, it, it's used to describe marriage as the most intimate possible relationship between people. Paul says that in communion, in, in the Eucharist, in, in the Lord's Supper, we have fellowship, koinonia, with the body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. So this, this was believed to be a point at which there's a, a, the closest connection, the closest tie that we can have to Jesus occurs during communion. These are very early ideas in the church. Luther and Calvin and all the other reformers accepted them. They believed them. To Luther, a sacrament was something that Jesus, it had to be something that Jesus specifically commanded us to do. So in the Catholic Church, you've got seven sacraments. Baptism, that's something Jesus commanded us to do. Luther argues baptism is a sacrament. But then you go to penance. Jesus never commanded us to confess our sins to a priest. James says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. But that's about as far as it goes. It's not a command of Christ. So instead of confessing to a priest, Luther introduces a practice of a general confession of sin before the service. It's still important to confess your sins, but it's not a sacrament, and it doesn't have to be done to a priest. 
Next, you get communion. We talked about that one already, sacrament. That's great. Let's use it. Confirmation, nowhere mentioned in Scripture. Jesus certainly didn't command it. Not a sacrament. Luther continues to confirm people. He says it's a, you know, it's a good practice. It's a way of marking somebody's seriousness about being a, uh, involved in the church. But it's not really doesn't qualify as a sacrament. Marriage. Well, atheists get married. Jews get married. Buddhists get married. Hindus get married. Shintoists get married. Pagans get married. Mm-hmm. How is this a Christian sacrament? Instead, it's what becomes known as a creation ordinance. It's something that God enjoins on Adam and Eve at the very beginning, and therefore it's binding on all humanity. It is not peculiarly Christian. It's not a sacrament. Jesus never commanded it. He attended a wedding, but it goes back before that. So marriage doesn't qualify as a sacrament either. It's obviously something good to do. We should do it, but holy orders. Uh, Calvin will later argue that laying on hands at ordination qualifies as a sacrament. He, meant, he says this once and only once. Luther rejected it as a sacrament because holy orders implies an entire system built around a, having a unique priesthood. Um, it's the, the process of you know, deacon to priest, bishop, all of these kinds of things, or becoming a monk. All, the, all these different sorts of things are all involved in this concept of holy orders. Luther says it's completely wrong. Yeah, we should have pastors, but you know what? Everybody's a priest, according to Peter. Mm-hmm. And since everybody is a priest, we do not need a mediator between us and God. We've already got one in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea of holy orders is completely wrong. Now, Luther, again, he still has pastors. He has them ordained, but not a sacrament. Jesus never commanded it. And lastly, you get extreme unction or anointing the sick. And again, you you see references to this elsewhere, but Jesus never commanded us to do it. And since it wasn't a command of Christ, it's not a sacrament, according to Luther. Mm -hmm. Um, Might be a good practice, you know, calling the elders of the church, if you're sick, to have them anoint you with oil. Fine. Not a sacrament. Worthwhile practice? Perhaps but doesn't qualify as a sacrament. So that's Luther's critique of these things. He's also going to argue, however, that the Catholic Church misunderstands both baptism and communion. The two sacraments that they do, that, 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 they, that are legitimate sacraments that they practice, they have the completely wrong understanding of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's going to criticize them on that count as well. I like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. <clears throat> We've got Dr. Glenn Sunshine on as our guest talking about from Reformation today. But if you're here next week, we are going to be talking about a doctrine that Catholics and Orthodox have very strong views on, but even Jokers might not have looked at so much. Maybe we should. Tim Perry is going to be my guest next week, and we're going to be discussing his book, Mary for Evangelicals. What does Mary mean to us as evangelicals today? So I hope you're here next week for that. Now, to get back to Dr. Sunshine here, something else I'd like to ask you, you talk about you talk about competing churches and such. And I, I know that Catholics really make a big deal about this, and I've seen the Orthodox do it too, my wife and I. Are, well, she's really exploring Orthodoxy, and I go to the classes with her. I'm not at all convinced, but I remember the priest saying that they are supposedly... 40,000 denominations in America, and there's two new ones added every week. You know, the number keeps changing and such, so there are a lot of people in Catholic and Orthodox circles say, doesn't this show a problem with your system? I mean, you all can't get alone. Look at how many denominations there are. Um, well, 
two answers to that. One of them is, yes, absolutely, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus is not fond of division. Mm -hmm. okay. and, but the thing you have to remember is that these various denominations come up largely, there are really only a relatively small number of core denominations. Right. There may be 30 different kinds of Baptists, but they're all Baptists. There may be uh, 100 Presbyterians, well, it's probably more like 30 Presbyterians and 100 Baptists. I mean, there may be huge numbers of these, but they fall into broad families. And the divisions between them, frankly, should never have happened. Um, they're based on majoring in, in, in a lot of things that are really non-essentials for the most part. Most church splits are built around that. However, there's another side of this that I don't think people take into account. And that's that Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And he says, we're one body with many members, and not all the members are the same. They all do different things. Well, we the, the sort of classic view of this ends up being within a single church, you've got a diversity of gifts and so on at work within the church. And that's certainly true. The question that I have, though, is if we view the church as the universal body of Christ, then should we not also expect diversity within the body that way? Mm -hmm. So, for example, I know people who are left absolutely cold by liturgies. I'm can't one of them. It. Can't stand it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not. But I know people who are like that. Yeah. And they think that this idea of saying the same thing every week is just sort of a really bad idea, that the liturgy is just a waste of time, that it's just a bunch of rote stuff and things like that. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to worship effectively in a heavily liturgical church. I know other people who are in love with liturgy, and it is incredibly meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And for them... The more freeform styles of worship don't work. Mm -hmm. So the question that I have is, how do you accommodate both of those? Mm -hmm. I would suggest that the diversity within the body in terms of, just to pick a simple example, styles of worship, isn't a bad thing. Yeah. You know, it, it, you know C.S. Lewis, you know, to pick the other side of this, C.S. Lewis said that, he finds it impossible to worship if he has to keep looking to see what comes next. Okay? Well, for other people, it's impossible to worship if they already know what comes next. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you solve the problem? I think that some aspects of the diversity of, that exists within the body are good and healthy mm -hmm. because they enable the parts of the body to worship. Similarly, in terms of ministries, there are some churches that have a tremendous desire to do foreign missions. There are other churches that are really involved in inner city work. There are other churches that are involved in um, working with uh, opioid addicts. Pick, you know, pick your, your issue. Different churches have different spheres of ministry. Mm -hmm. And whether, you, whether or not that's necessarily a denominational issue, frequently it ends up being that. So it's not clear to me that the I mean, yes, on one level, it is clear to me that 40,000 denominations is way too much and that that is a product of human sin. On the other hand, 
it is equally clear to me that diversity in churches is not a bad thing because the churches are the body of Christ and the body of Christ has diversity in it, according to Paul. Yeah. I like what you said about diversity. Like I said, my wife is exploring the Orthodox Church, and I know the priest that talks about liturgy over and over and over again. I go there, and it's like, oh boy, we're saying the exact same things that we said last week that I don't even believe in, and such. And it's like, this is the time I get out my kinder. And even in many Protestant churches, usually the contemporary Christian music to me is just so vapid as... I don't get this at all. If I go to a church service, I have to have my mind touched. And the preaching is where it's at. And as I was uh, singing out this thing about, you know, there are some people I know who are also what we call prayer warriors. They could pray for an hour or so. For me, it's it's an effort to pray for five minutes at <laughs> times even. And, but I could sit down and I could read a book on Christianity for an hour or so, and most, and some of these people might not be able to read that for five minutes. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like you, j- just as a challenge to you, okay, the fact that you disagree with elements of the liturgy is obviously important. Yeah. However, let me ask you this question. Okay. Have you ever been in a non-liturgical church service, and by the way, all church services are liturgical, it's just a question yeah. of how well the liturgy is. Yeah. But let's call it non-liturgical. Have you ever been in a non-liturgical church service and had your mind wander? Of course. How is that different from reciting the prayers each week and letting your mind wander there? Uh, I guess the main thing is I'm thinking a lot about content and such, and I hear things like... Okay, think, yeah. let's talk about content. Okay. Read through the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, granted, there will be some things you disagree with, but your average liturgical church has a liturgy that is very firmly built on Scripture, mm-hmm. and in fact, it has more content than you usually get in evangelical churches. Yep. In the liturgy. Yep. If you're paying attention, yep. if you're focused. Yeah, I I, I can handle it if it's talking about. I agree, but when we start talking about addressing the saints and addressing Mary, that's when my mind starts to wander off. <laughs> okay, that's a theological issue. Yep. But yeah. I, I do like what you said about that. We are, are different. I mean, I definitely prefer going to a church that... I mean, the, the best church Ari and I ever went to was one in Knoxville, and I, she said, How, what did you think? Because I went first time alone. She was a bit hesitant. I said, I even like the music person. Whoa. And said, in the sermon, I actually got something out of it. Okay, I got to check this out. And we checked it out together, and it became our home church pretty much immediately. And I, I, I've had the, the pastor on my show before talk about it. And one of the things I, I really liked also is during the service, they had a number up so that someone could text in questions if they wanted to. And at the end, the, the speaker would come out and he'd answer questions that were texted in. I thought, this is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, for some people, the intellectual stimulation is what's really important. Yeah. For other people, it's aesthetic stimulation. Yeah. My, my wife's like that. She's an artist. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as I said, you know, I'm going back to the initial question. There's a yes and no on the problem of denominations. Uh-huh. Um, 
I think that that diversity within the body is a positive thing. However, diversity should always exist in the service of unity. Yeah. And that's where we where we fail. Mm-hmm. Now, when to get back to the whole issues going on and such, I, I mentioned the Orthodox Church some. We've got this Reformation that pretty much seems to be going on between the Protestants and the Catholics. What are the Orthodox doing this whole time? Yeah, I can't imagine the primates sitting out there and popping some popcorn saying, we're going to sit back and enjoy this show because it doesn't matter which one of them wins us. Well, you have to remember the Orthodox world, a lot of the Orthodox world is currently being occupied by Islam. Mm-hmm. And so the patriarch in Constantinople, for example, is... Um, is uh, you know right in the middle of uh, the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, what ends up happening actually is both the Catholics and the Protestants end up appealing to the Orthodox. They go to the Orthodox and basically lay out their case on why they're right and the other side is wrong. And the Orthodox response was essentially a plague on both your houses. Neither <laughs> of you are right. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. I, I like that you mentioned also the thing about Islam being there because I understand also Martin Luther was uh, to have his own copy of a Quran and I think he instructed that people who were going to minister to Muslims should be reading the Quran. Um, I have not heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Well, it would surprise me up to a point because Arabic printing hadn't come up yet. He'd have to get a handwritten copy of it. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and then you'd have to find somebody who could translate it effectively into a language that he knew. There may be some Latin Qurans floating around by this point, but I'm not sure. If uh, there was another criticism I usually hear about Martin Luther, is that Luther was probably a big anti-intellectual because he kept saying all these negative things about reason over and over. Was Luther opposed to reason? Absolutely not. You have to understand Luther's statements there in light of Mm -hmm. the context he's coming out of. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mentioned scholasticism before, which is this method of study that was used where you have a text and you've got all the glosses and the commentaries and things like that around it. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, the way scholasticism worked is you treated your sources as a mine out of which you would dig statements, propositions, from which you would build large, elaborate, logical chains. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was the way theology was done. You know, you get the stereotypical thing, how many angels can it take to dance on, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that question was ever actually asked. As far as but, I know, it wasn't. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, they're, what they're doing is they're developing these theologies out of these long, elaborate chains of reasoning that are based on specific propositions that are taken completely out of context and spun into these these very elaborate and, frankly, at times very fanciful theological systems. When Luther is attacking reason, he's thinking of that. Mm. Not so much the, the, remember he says, unless I'm convinced by scripture or clear reason. He doesn't have anything against reason per se. But what he does have, what he does dislike is the way it is used, the way it is applied in academic theology in his period. Mm-hmm. Now, when we had our guest on last week, 
Jim Payton and Father Barnabas Powell together, you know, they both seem to agree with something about the Reformation. Right? In a sense, it was a necessary event that was needed, but it could be considered a necessary evil in many ways. And such. Would you say the same thing? No. Okay. Uh, I would say it was necessary. Um, it would have been nice if it weren't. Yeah. But the fact that it was necessary... There, there, as happens in every case, I cannot think of a single example other than Jesus. Everything that human beings do sooner or later can, can be or is turned to evil. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, just, it's just the way the world is in our fallen state. Mm. So there are certainly some negative consequences that came out of the Reformation. But on the whole, I would say there are far more positive results not just in terms of the spiritual questions of salvation and issues of that sort, but in terms of its long-term impact on society. I would say the Reformation, hands down, had far more positive results than negative results in all kinds of areas. Okay. Could you expand on that and tell us what are some of these positive areas that were impacted by the Reformation? Okay, well, let's just start with the idea that I mentioned before, the idea of the priesthood of all believers. Okay. Okay. What that does, that's part of a a bigger picture where the strict breakdown between the sacred and the secular that existed within uh, the medieval Catholic Church, and to some extent still does today, uh, that strict breakdown between the two, the strict separation, is eroded. Mm -hmm. So that increasingly, you know, the individual no longer needs a priest to stand between him and God. He feels free to come to God individually. But if we are priests, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, what it means is that the work we do in our lives is sacred. Mm -hmm. And being a priest doesn't mean being the guy who does the sacraments and says the prayers and stuff like that. Being a priest means acting, if you will, as a mediator of God's grace wherever you are. So your work then becomes sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of the sacredness of work, th- this is an idea that had existed within Christianity prior to this. And you find people paying a certain amount of lip service to it, even during the Middle Ages. But what you really see is the idea that the priest is superior to everybody else because he's doing sacred work that has got eternal significance. And you're just sort of mucking around with stuff in this world that's all going to burn. Mm-hmm. So what it does, what the Reformation does, among other things, is, is it increases the recognition of the significance and value of this world. God, after all, after he created it, it said that it was very good. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as a result, all callings, everything that you do in this world is, in fact, a sacred calling, which means that... As you do your work, you should, as Paul puts it, do it as unto God, not unto men. It means you put your best effort into things. It means you see what you are doing as a means of serving God and serving your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And this leads to a totally new way of looking at work. Mm -hmm. Um, It leads to... Well, like I said, you know, the, the, the negative side of this is in the long run, it turns into a very secularized... Uh, thing in which work becomes an end completely in and of itself, not in service of God and neighbor, 
and uh, you know you get people who are workaholics and their entire life is their career and things like that. That's the negative side of it, where it gets taken too far. But the the revaluation of the world as significant in and of itself, I think, is a tremendously important thing. It has a huge impact, like I said, on ideas of work, on ideas of vocation. In the Catholic Church, your vocation, which comes from the Latin word meaning to call, the only people who had a vocation were clergy. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, people began to recognize that God can call us into all walks of life, into any walk of life, and therefore, since God is the one who's calling us into it, it's sacred duty. Mm-hmm. So all of these ideas about work, the valuation, of, the value of society, all of these things which lead into concepts of, of uh, free markets and, and uh, things of that sort, these are all products, really, of the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, along with this, you also see a change in the nature of family life. Again, if the priesthood of all believers is true, then in the home, well, the way that they would uh, they would put it is that the first pastor of the family is the father. Mm-hmm. You get a new valuation of marriage so that celibacy is no longer seen as being spiritually superior. Mm-hmm. In fact, Luther is going to argue that marriage is spiritually superior because it te- teaches you all kinds of things about love and service that you cannot possibly learn as someone who is celibate. Oh, yes. <laughs> so so marriage and family suddenly also begin to rise in importance. Mm-hmm. And what you see, especially if you're looking at the, the, if you actually look at the literature of the period, you see a, a remarkable strengthening of marriages and a remarkable degree of what is technically referred to as companionate marriages, where the husband and wife see each other as companions, as compliments, and work as working together toward a common goal. Mm-hmm. So, and and by the way, you've also in the process removed the confessor from the household, mm-hmm. because in the Catholic Church you always have to have a priest who is there to act as mediator between you and God to take to confess your sins to and those kinds of things, and that always became a third person in in households that were really seriously dedicated uh, to their faith. That's now removed. The household is is now a more independent unit and essentially a mini church. Mm. Uh, We can talk about education. Protestantism insisted on, um, on people getting basic literacy because they wanted them to be able to read the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you get a huge push for public education. Uh, even in the United States, New England public schools were created so that the people would be able to read their Bible to hold their legislators accountable for the laws they pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benjamin Rush, the founder of the uh, public education system in the U.S., Rush said over and over again that republics only survive on the basis of virtue. That was a very commonly understood idea in that period. And the only way to really promote virtue, the best way to do it, is to promote the scriptures, because the scriptures are the most purely Republican doctrine you will ever find. Mm-hmm. So, again, this, this Protestant idea, get people into the Bible, reading the Bible, so they have to be educated. And then further, Protestants are going to be the first ones in, to insist on having a thoroughly educated clergy. Mm-hmm. This is going to lead to the production of all kinds of new colleges and universities. All of the Ivy League schools were founded uh, to train pastors. Mm-hmm. Okay, So you're seeing this tremendous push in educational areas. Um, there is an increasing, well, Catholic Church had a sense of responsibility to the poor, certainly. Uh, the Protestants take it in new directions, though. The idea of 
what would eventually emerge as a welfare state. The idea that the state has responsibility of taking care of the poor within its borders is largely a Protestant idea. Mm. Uh, you can't, I mean, we, we can go on and on and on. Politically, there are massive changes that, were, that occur because of Protestantism. And effectively, you don't get modern Republican governments without the impact of Protestantism. Mm. Uh, both Luther in, in his uh, two Luther had an, uh, what he called a, uh, a two kingdom theology. This is a little different from what most people think it is. Luther said that God has two kingdoms in this world. There is the left hand kingdom, which corresponds roughly to the church, not exactly, but pretty close. Excuse me. The, the left hand kingdom is human government. The right hand kingdom is the church. Okay. Loose. Okay. Human government is something that's instituted by God. And even though governments can be corrupt, it is something that is fundamentally good because it is something that is created by God. Both the left hand and the right hand kingdoms are under God. They are ordained by God. And therefore, political society has virtue, potentially virtue, in a way that's much more difficult to get to out of Catholicism as an expression of the will of God. Technically, the Catholics have that. But in practice, what you see them emphasizing is the church over and over and over again, and the church even at times over government as a way of making sure that the governments function correctly. In this case, no, the left hand and the right hand uh, kingdoms don't, aren't, aren't to really interfere with each other. They cooperate in areas of common interest, but they're really to operate in their own spheres, both as positive goods. Mm -hmm. The one thing, incidentally, that Luther also insisted on is that neither the left nor the right-hand kingdom has any authority over conscience. Mm -hmm. Unlike the Catholic Church, which did insist that it had authority over conscience, Luther is going to insist that neither the left nor the right do because only God it has authority over our consciences. Mm -hmm. So freedom of conscience is also, it turns out, uh, a Protestant. It's not exactly an innovation. People in the early church understood this, but it had been lost. Protestantism recovers it. Mm -hmm. Then when you get to Calvin, Calvin is going to return to the Old Testament scriptures for some of his core ideas of government. He's going to look to Sinai. And he notes that when God sets up his government over Israel at Sinai, he asks them three times, will you agree to the terms of the covenant? And three times the people have to answer yes. From this, Calvin says, if God has to do this, then human governments also must derive their legitimacy from the consent of the governed. Mm -hmm. And in fact, government consists of a covenant between the ruler and the ruled that the people have to enter into freely. Mm -hmm. This is going to move through a bunch of French thinkers, ultimately to John Locke, who will come up with a secularized version of it, known as contract theory of government. And this is going to be the roots of a lot of his uh, second treatise on government, which, of course, was a major inspiration for Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. None of that happens without Calvin, though. Mm. It's very much a Protestant idea. Mm -hmm. um, it's worth noting, by the way, that Locke's unalienable rights actually come from medieval Catholic theologians. Okay. Um, life, liberty, and property. He sees those as being founded on God's provisions for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And since they precede human government, human government has no authority over them. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. And everything we do here is supported by listeners like you. And if you want to support us, 
go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, and in that section, there's a little sub-link there. You click on that, you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You go in the right place, those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, and when you do, you get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or my wife, Allie, and you say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick, to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. And you can also go and buy ebooks that I have written, such as The Apostles' Creed, a creed for, uh, a creed for the ages of the Apostles' Creed and today's Christian, or Defining Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, Groundless, and The Mention of Ours Project is another great one to read. And you can also buy jewelry. We have a jewelry store set up, and when you go there, you can make a purchase, and whatever you buy, 25% of that will go to support the work of Deeper Waters. And guys, you know what I've told you before. You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that, to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her, or you can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, consider going on uh, on iTunes and just leaving a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. Guys, I love to see them. It means so much to me to see your positive reviews, to know how much you like the show and such. Um, Dr. Sunshine, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, yeah, there are two that I would mention. First of them is uh, Breakpoint, uh-huh. which is uh, now independent of Prison Fellowship. It's part of the Colson Center. Uh, worldview uh, training, worldview uh, commentaries. It's a great organization. I do a lot of work with them. Uh, the second is Compassion International in mm-hmm. Colorado Springs. Uh, they work with uh, children around the world, poor children, getting sponsorships and, and things like that to see to it that kids are given a good education and raised in the faith and given a good launch in life um, from some of the poorest and uh, most uh, destitute regions of the world, frankly. So. Mm-hmm. I was really amazed listening to the whole thing about the uh, the effort the impact that Protestantism has made because it seemed like before and there seemed to be this whole uh, divide between the secular and the sacred as it were and I've heard some people say one of the biggest mistakes the church made in history was the division of the laity and the clergy and such and Luther it looks like his thought says we've got to get rid of this divide idea I mean of course there are going to be people who are always more educated in theology and such but each of us is to do our role in God's kingdom, not just for priest. Right. And, and Luther certainly had pastors. There's no question yeah. there. And he had pastors and said their responsibility is to preach and administer the sacraments. No problem. That was yeah. all, you know, that was certainly there. But he was also clear that pastors performed, yes, an essential role in the community, but it was no more essential than any number of other people mm-hmm. who are. You know, the farmers who feed people, the cobblers who put shoes on their feet, the the tailors who make their clothes. All of these things are essential. You can't function without them. Um, and so all of them 
are doing God's work in mm -hmm. terms of promoting the good of, of their neighbor. The pastor has a particular set of responsibilities, but they're no higher than anyone else. Now, over time, that's going to change. Lutherans, like most people, are going to most religious organizations are increasingly going to see pastors as being more spiritual or something than the rest of the people. I mean, so the the core insight that was there was good. It didn't hold up as well over time. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I was talking to some about this indirectly with Oz Guinness at one point. And uh, Oz actually used a phrase with me that I had been starting to use as well. He said, what we really need now is a reformation of the laity. Mm -hmm. We've had a reformation of theology in the 16th century. We need a reformation of the laity now. Mm -hmm. Now, today, when I'm doing ministry, I can freely work alongside Catholics in such, in many instances, but yet we see right after this, the Reformation took place, Catholics and Protestants are pretty much killing each other. I mean, let's, let's face it, there's blood on both sides and such. Right. This doesn't make sense to a lot of us today. Why would this be going on over this? Well, we, you, you have to go back to sort of basic principles. Mm -hmm. In this period, it was believed that society has to be built on a foundation of truth. Because if it isn't built on truth, it's built on a lie. And if it's built on a lie, it's going to collapse. And the most fundamental truth there is out there is truth about God. God is the source of truth. He's the origin of all truth. And it is assumed then that if you get your ideas about God wrong, you are undermining the very fabric of society. And you're threatening the whole thing to come down with collapse. Um, and that's just as sort of a natural consequence, let alone if you deliberately allow people who are heretics out there, what's God going to think of that? Mm -hmm. So you, you are inviting the wrath of God and you are inviting the collapse of society, even apart from direct divine intervention, if you allow heretics out there. And further, let's take it the next step. Uh, Jesus tells us that we shouldn't fear people who, sh who can only kill the body. We should fear people we should fear the one who can kill the body and afterwards throw the soul into hell. Well, the heretic is the person who is going to be spreading ideas that are so dangerous, you will be one of these those people who are thrown into hell because of those ideas if you adopt them. So heretics are actually worse than murderers. The murderer mm -hmm. can kill the body, he can't kill the soul. The heretic can kill both. For that reason, you burn heretics. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a mass movement of heretics, what do you do? You go to war. You go to war. Mm -hmm. No one in this period believed a religiously divided kingdom could stand. Mm -hmm. And as a result, when you get religious division, it frequently leads into warfare, civil warfare in the case of the Shmokaldic Wars, French Wars of Religion, arguably the Dutch Revolt, although there were other things involved there, um, the English Civil War. And so, it, when we look at something like, say, the Council of Trent and the statements it made, it looks to me like there was a whole lot of anathemas directly fired straight at Protestants. Right. Do, do Catholic stages tend to disregard that or what? Well, what ends up happening at Trent, it, it, Trent was supposed to be a reform council, well, actually, it was a, a very successful reform council of the church but not so successful, frankly, in dealing with Protestants. 
Um, what the Council of Trent did effectively when it came to Protestant criticisms of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. in terms of practical issues, they they made a lot of really good changes. The, you know, it, it made a lot of things Luther complained about the, the Trent fixes in terms of the abuses. But remember, the key thing about Protestantism is that it says that the problem isn't just the abuses. It's not just the practices. It's the theology that underlies it. Mm -hmm. So when the Council of Trent starts addressing the theological issues, basically, any time the Protestants challenged anything, the Catholic Church dug in its heels and said, no, you're wrong. They didn't give an inch to any Protestant ideas. Now, having said that, it's a tad more complicated because there are a number of things that the Protestants challenged theologically that Trent simply did not speak about. So, for example, uh, Trent doesn't have any statement on papal authority. It doesn't have any statement on Mary. And the reason it doesn't is there was no consensus at Trent at that time so that they could come out with a statement. They needed a consensus. So they simply ignored those, didn't say anything about them. But in all other cases, if the Protestants said, you're wrong here, the Catholics said, no, we're right, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. That's why you get all those anathemas. Mm-hmm. So- it's worth noting, however, that people in the Catholic Church today, including a lot of the leaders, tend to not talk about those, tend to ignore them, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're much more ecumenically minded now than they used to be. This raises problems for people like R.C. Sproul, for example, refused to work with Catholics at all because he said these anathemas are still on the books and we can't work with them. They consider us heretics. Mm-hmm. I'm a little more ecumenical than that. But that's that's the reaction that uh, a number of evangelical leaders, particularly Reformed leaders, have had. Yeah, if anything, I, I sometimes think nowadays the Catholic Church has gone too far. I mean, I think I've heard that Pope Francis even said an atheist could get to heaven just by doing good works and such. Yeah, he sort of implied that. Um, the context in which that happened is he was talking to a young boy whose father had been an atheist and had died, and the boy was really scared that his father ended up in hell. And Francis gave an answer that may have been pastorally appropriate, but was theologically dubious. Mm-hmm. So how did people like, say, John Calf? and Zwingli get involved in the Reformation? Were they just people who happened to read Luther's writings, or did Luther pick them out, or what? Well, Zwingli is actually a contemporary of Luther. Calvin is a generation later. Uh-huh. Um, Zwingli, Zwingli says he came up with his ideas, justification by faith and such, on his own without reading Luther. Um, this is possible. Uh, It turns out that even before Luther talked about justification by faith alone, there was a French scholar, a humanist scholar by the name of Lefebvre d'Etaple, who in his uh, commentaries on Paul's epistles articulated virtually the identical doctrine, justification by grace through faith alone. And that happened five years before the 95 Theses. No evidence that Luther read him, at least not that work by him. Um, So Lefebvre comes up with it independently. Luther comes up with it independently. It's not impossible that Zwingli could have come up with it independently. What they all have in common is they're all either trained as humanists or influenced by humanists, and they all have in common 
interest in traditional theological questions. And again, I argued that's where justification by faith came from before. Um, the idea that you're asking traditional questions, but you're answering them in a different way. Mm-hmm. Having So it's possible that all three of them in the same decade could have come up with this idea. However, the counter argument is that when you read Zwingli, his German reveals a lot of influence from Luther. So it seems that whether he came up with the idea independently, eventually at least, he was reading Luther, and you really do see Luther's language showing up influencing Zwingli. Mm-hmm. So, but in any event, the difference between Zwingli and Luther um, was really a, centered around the fact that Zwingli's reform was urban-based, whereas Luther's was based on an entire province. It was territorial, a lot more rural involvement, things like that. And the reason why that's important is the cities were the places where there was the highest literacy rate. And as a result, during this period, there was a growing demand for a more word-centered, text-centered approach to worship in the cities. So Zwingli's reform was really built around that interest, catering to that particular need. Um, As a result, he will, for example, have a greatly stripped-down liturgy. He's not going to have anywhere near the elaborate liturgy Luther does, which is essentially a translation of the Catholic liturgy cleaned up for Protestant theology. Zwingli's going to have a much more bare-bones liturgy that's going to focus primarily on preaching. He's going to remove stained-glass windows, statues, things like that from the churches and whitewash the walls. Luther leaves the decorations in. Zwingli does that, though, because he says he doesn't want anything to distract from the preaching. Mm -hmm. Luther has a fairly high view of communion in terms of um, the idea that the bread and wine contain the real presence of Christ. Um, Zwingli is going to argue no the body and blood of Christ are not there. Christ is spiritually present there. He's not phys- He's not present bodily in any sense. Um, you know, so th- there'll be a number of these differences. I would argue really centered around this idea of a much, much more word-centered approach to worship, which is going to tend to downplay the significance of sacrament. Mm-hmm. But because of that, Luther and Zwingli are going to basically say, you know, neither of you are getting the sacraments right. And since, as I said before, the two marks of the church are where the gospel is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered, they don't believe that the other has a legitimate church. And the Mm -hmm. net result is that's the first major split that emerges within Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Calvin's going to be a next generation reformer. Uh, His view of the Eucharist is somewhere between Zwingli's and Luther's. And... um, He's going to probably, I would, I, I would, I think it's fair to say that Calvin was the best scholar and the best theological mind of the Reformation, which is why his ideas end up going farther uh, than any of the others mm-hmm. in terms of their influence. Yeah, Calvin seems to be pretty much synonymous with the whole idea of what we call <coughs> reformed theology. Right. Technically, Zwingli's part of Reformed theology, too, but Calvin was really the 500-pound gorilla. He he dominates it now. Yeah, and I, I say that as one who considers myself kind of a, a zero-point Calvinist, as it were, you know, which kind of seems valid. He says, well, do you disagree with the Reformation? No, I just don't agree with everything Calvin said. <laughs> so Yeah, there, there are a lot of... Um, there. There's an entire industry surrounding criticisms and defenses of Calvin. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, we're still arguing about that um, in a lot of ways. I, uh, I'm not a theologian and I'm not temperamentally these days. I used to be more argumentative. These days I'm not temperamentally given to getting into those kinds of arguments. I'd rather just sort of focus on what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'm very much, pretty much the same way. So it's that the the Catholics did eventually have a counter reformation as it were. Did they ever take seriously some of Luther's ideas and such and say, okay, we do need to change some things? Well, yeah, as I said, they. Uh, by the way, I would be careful here. Uh, I I preferred the term Catholic Reformation to Counter Reformation. Okay. And the reason for that is counter-reformation suggests that everything that they're doing is simply uh, an attempt to respond to Protestantism, when in fact a lot of things that happened during the Catholic Reformation really are internal to the Catholic Church. They're not really a response to anything outside of it. Um, but having said that, there are certainly counter-reformation aspects of the Catholic Reformation. And within the Catholic Reformation, they don't, as I said before, they do a good job at cleaning up the abuses, but they reject any of Luther's ideas because to them, the problem is the abuses. Their theology is fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, uh, so they're going to reject Protestant ideas. They'll reject Luther's ideas. They'll reject all of that. But they do address the issues of abuse that had been brought up by Erasmus, by Luther, and by others. Mm -hmm. Most of them, though not all, most of them are cleaned up. Mm -hmm. now, I know when I'm at the Orthodox Church, my wife, the whole thing is still brought up often about the divisions of the body and such, and we've talked about some before, but you know, as long as we stick to so many of our traditions, there is going to be division in the body. What steps can we take today to bring about unity amongst the three different major traditions? Well, well, there are already groups out there that are working on building bridges. Uh, mm -hmm. I would think of uh, magazines or journals like First Things or Touchstone. Mm -hmm. uh, Touchstone is more sort of evangelical, reformed, and orthodox. First Things is evangelical, reformed, and Catholic. Um, but they're, you know, they're that that's where they lean. So there are already things that are moving forward in that direction. Another thing that I think is really helpful, and this is one of the reasons, by the way, why evangelicals and Catholics have been starting to talk to each other more, is finding common causes. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, evangelicals and Catholics have really come to appreciate each other more because they're both on the battle lines of the abortion debate. Yeah. You know, so finding ways to work together to cooperate with each other um, in areas that we can agree on is always a positive thing. And the other thing I would do is I would suggest that what all sides need is a greater level of humility. You know, to recognize that God is far bigger than we are. He's far bigger than our categories. He's far bigger than our theologies. And as a result, to say that I am right about something does not necessarily mean that someone who has a different view of it is wrong. It's possible that it's mm -hmm. not an either or, but a both and in a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some where there are true contradictions, and then you have to kind of thrash that out. But I think we would be better off being a little bit more humble in recognizing that there is real truth in all of the traditions, 
and that what we need to do is find ways of developing a more multivalent approach to our theologies. Mm-hmm. That, you know, rather than saying, you know, the atonement is about forensic justification, and that's it. And if you have a different view than forensic justification, you're wrong. Um, how about saying the atonement is about forensic justification, but it's also about a whole lot more than that, and these other traditions help us to understand and appreciate that more. In other words, we can enrich our own theology by looking into the strengths and the ideas of others. Mm-hmm. Rather than just reading our own people all the time, maybe we should start reading some of the other branches of Christianity. Read them critically, of course. Read them, re- read them you know, with a, uh, um, you know, a, as an evangelical, I would say, read them with, with the scriptures in mind. But take into account the fact that these guys have been studying the scriptures for centuries longer than we have. Mm-hmm. And they may have insights in them that we're missing. But I would say the same to them. The and vice versa also applies. Yeah, I've been doing a whole lot of reading lately. I'm going to try and get back to the main areas I do read on. Simply, I've been reading the Catholic books, the Orthodox books and such, since my wife is exploring, say, hey, I want to be informed, and even going to a priest of the Orthodox Church and saying, hey, what book would you recommend? And had him go and tell me about Winner's Library, went and got it, read straight through it, and such. And it is very helpful. I mean, it's good to uh, hear the other sides you have to say. And in the end, I've come and said, you know, I still am Protestant, but I have a whole lot greater appreciation now for why I am Protestant. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah, well, I'm actually talking about doing a project with a theologian named Ken Boa. Mm -hmm. Um, We're uh, we're talking about possibly collaborating. I don't know anybody else who who would be willing to do this or, frankly, uh, who's crazy enough to join me in it. Uh, But um, we're talking about trying to develop a a what I would call an integrated theology where we dig into all of the major traditions. And oh, by the way, I would add Pentecostal here as another tradition that is -hmm. worth paying attention to. Certainly not as strong intellectually in many respects, um, but I think that there's a lot we we need to pay attention to there because it is, after all, the fastest growing branch of Christianity. Um, But along the way, trying to pull out the ways in which the different theologies complement each other rather than thinking about them as contradicting. And thus coming up, for example, with a book on uh, the atonement that pulls in all of the various major views of it, and you know, including particularly the orthodox theosis idea, uh, which is one that we're really unfamiliar with, and trying to come up with a more comprehensive bigger picture of what's going on as a way of either bridging the gaps between the different groups and getting them to appreciate each other more and work together better, or alternately getting them all really mad at us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'd certainly be open to uh, promoting such a work on this podcast if you're ever interested in such. Well, if we ever actually get it off the ground, I'll be sure to let you know. Mm-hmm. But as it is, here we are now, and it's about 501 years, I think, after the Reformation took place. And 
you've said some on this already, the difference that makes such. I mean, how, how can we, if we want to celebrate what happened 500 plus years ago, what are the best things we can do to honor the message that the reformers want to pass on to us? Well, I would say that there are a couple of things that we should be doing. One of them is if we really want to honor them, we need to learn more about them. So I would mm -hmm. suggest reading some good books. Mm -hmm. uh, if you like biographies, there are some very uh, – Metaxas's biography of Luther uh, is, is good. Um, there are a lot of good biographies of, of the reformers um, that are out there. Or just read histories. Um, there, again, there are – there's a boatload of very good histories of the Reformation of varying lengths. Um, so first of all, educate yourself. The second thing, though, I would say is that we need to go back. If, if you are inclined to do this, I would suggest we actually read their writings. Mm -hmm. um, because over the centuries, a lot of their ideas have, well, some of their ideas have you know, been modified in positive ways. But there are some core ideas that they had that were left undeveloped and actually are now largely forgotten. And again, this goes back to this idea of the priesthood of the laity, excuse me, the Re reformation of the laity, uh, building on the idea of the priesthood of all believers and the sacredness of all of life. These were core ideas for Luther and other reformers, and yet somehow I think we've lost sight of them. Um, particularly, you know, the Catholics certainly never really had this well, nor the Orthodox. But I was in an evangelical church for years when I was in high school, where the sense you got is that if you were really serious about your faith, you'd become a missionary. If you were sort of a slacker, you'd become a, a pastor. <laughs> you know, and and that was the only that was the only possibility if you were serious about your faith. Now, I don't know. I don't think those ideas are as widespread as they used to be. But I find it amazing how consistently when someone really, a, a young person, uh, comes to faith or, you know, discovers Christ or, you know, has some sort of experience, his first thought is, I need to become a pastor. Mm -hmm. What you need to do is become what God is calling you to be. And that doesn't mean necessarily, it might be a pastor, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. You don't need to think that you're a second-class Christian because you're working out in the secular world. Further. Um, to take it a step beyond that, and this is way beyond where the reformers were, where did we ever get the idea that the way you bring people to Christ is to take them to church? Oh, yeah. You know, the job, according to Ephesians, the job of the leaders in the church is to equip us to do the work of ministry. Mm -hmm. So why do we think we have to subcontract our work back to the professionals rather than doing it ourselves. Mm -hmm. We are the people who should be, we should bring people to Christ and then take them to church where they can get discipled more effectively. Mm -hmm. Not the other way around. So we need to be doing, that. that's all part of this reformation of the laity, which I would argue should have been an idea that came out of the reformation. They had the core concepts, but they lost it way too fast. Mm -hmm. So these are some, just some uh, kind of random ideas on this. And I'd say one way the laity can inform themselves is listening to shows just like this one. 
Well, Dr. Sunshine, we don't really have time to ask another question. I say it's been a, a treat here. One of the things I tell people I love getting to do about the show is I've got two hours to sit with a guest, and it, I get an education every time. And it's certainly been very informative here. Um, if someone wants to get in touch with you, they want to find out more about this, do you have a blog, a website, an email, way people can get in touch if they do want to find out that extra bit? Yeah, I have a uh, a website. It's uh, for a variety of reasons. A number of things on it have have gone down. The links have have died, so I'm I'm busy rebuilding it. But uh, you can get some of the stuff that I do at uh, e square inch. That's e s q u a r e i n c h dot org. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I have a five hundred one c three ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes from a quote from Abraham Kuyper. There's not a single square inch in the whole domain of human experience over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not cry mine. Mm-hmm. So esquareinch.org or .com, either one works. Um, and you can uh, find uh, a number of my articles uh, there. And uh, there should be a way of sending me questions or comments uh, through that as well. Do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Yeah, the I, I had talked about the uh, three, I would argue, three solas of the Reformation. I think the other two, Sola Christi and Sola Deo Gloria, don't really, I don't know that they're that helpful in really understanding the Reformation. But the last one, Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory, that's got to be, you know, it, it is actually a good theme for the Reformation. It's really what they were thinking and what they were trying for. And I think that's something that that we should also be striving to do as well today, recognizing that, you know, God is so much bigger than us and that we're here. You know, our purpose in this world is to advance his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Reformers were trying to do. That's what we should be trying to do as well. Well, Dr. Sunshine, I'd like to thank you for taking your time and coming on here and talking with our audience today and such. And I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Well, thank you for having me. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.